Thanks, Kerry. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, great to see you here at church. Oh, I tell you, it's, it's horrible missing out on a party, isn't it? And last week, I missed out on the party. I was having FOMO last Sunday morning. But uh, I, I did sit up in bed, and I watched it online. I was so thankful. I was blessed. Thankful to see what, how God has worked in the church, and thankful for you as a, as a people. And uh, I was also incredibly grateful um, for, for James, who stepped up on Saturday. Saturday. Had nothing on Saturday and then prepared a great word uh, for us. I was particularly encouraged as he was sharing with us about um, having that grace-fueled love dynamic in a church. That's actually how a church grows. It doesn't actually grow through the law and through rules. It actually grows through grace. As people grow in grace and as you give people room to grow through grace, uh, that's how the church grows. So I was extremely thankful and blessed and a bit jealous because the choir was going. And that's my favourite thing in the world. But thank you to everyone who participated in that as well. And uh, grace really has been the thing that we've been seeing in the first three chapters of Ephesians. All the blessings of God's grace. And uh, we're going to look at, uh, kind of start looking at the second half of Ephesians this morning, chapters through four through six. So let's just pray as we do that. Father, we once again um, praise you for who you are. We praise you for your grace toward us in Jesus. Um, we thank you for the grace of your word, which uh, reveals who you are to us, reveals the gospel, and reveals to us how we now ought to live. And I pray as we seek it out this morning that our hearts would be uh, genuinely open to you, Lord. I pray that each one of us even might make a decision now, Lord, to receive from you this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, you can tell a person by the way that they walk, by the way that they walk. I'll be sitting in my office on a weekday morning uh, working away, and I can tell which staff member is coming up the stairs by the way that they walk. Uh, so I, if there's just about a few leaps and bounds up the stairs and then like a stronger push on the door that's needed, I know that's Ben Taylor. <laughs> or if, uh, you know, there's um, one where you can't actually hear any steps on the seat, all you can hear is the staircase creaking, that's Kerry, which is just a light touch on the stairs. Uh, Sal is kind of slow to medium paced but with rhythm up the stairs. And then there, there's one where there's honestly, it's like, this extremely loud thumping like this on every step all the way up and that's Tiana. The whole staircase is literally vibrating with noise. It's like singing a tune for a couple of minutes afterwards uh, by the time she gets up. I can tell uh, who it is by the way that they walk and it is the same thing that is true uh, of a Christian. You can tell a Christian by the way that, walk, that they walk, their way of life. I wonder if you've ever just met someone, it's like you met someone for the first time uh, and you're sort of just watching them, you see their nature, you see what they're like, the way they talk and you think to yourself, man, this person must be a Christian because there's a distinctness about the way that they walk and you think, man, they must have come into contact and encountered the same God that I have. Well, our walk is what the second part of Ephesians is all about. And you remember that the first three chapters has all been, been about his work. 
His work of election, of adoption, of redemption, his work of grace, his work in making one new man out of Jew and Gentile, one new humanity, his power that is at work within us. It's all about his work. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because, you know, on your best day and on your worst day, it doesn't change the fact that God's work has been done. God's work of grace has been done. It's an objective reality. And so though we may rise and fall in the way that we feel about ourselves or our performance, God's work is unchanging. It has been done. But now Paul transitions in the letter from God's work to our walk. Just have a look in verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, I, therefore. And what he's saying here when he uses the word therefore is he's saying in light of all of God's work that we see in chapter 1 through 3, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is the truth that God's work always begins to transform your walk. God's work transforms your walk. When you meet Jesus, you get a new walking style. You think about it, everyone has a walking style, and it's kind of hard to change your walking style, isn't it? Some people sort of walk with their toes pointed a little bit in, and then some people walk with their toes a little bit out. Some people walk flat-footed, and some people sort of like hop, you know, like they bounce along, and that's kind of ingrained. You think about trying to actually change your walking style, it's actually pretty hard to do. Um, but you know, this is actually what the sinful nature is like too. It There's this ingrained thing in our sinful nature that is very hard to change. But when you meet Jesus, when you meet his power and his glory and you experience his grace, God's work begins to transform your walk. Let me show you this briefly uh, from the word in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked and you were following the course of this world. But 10 verses later, he says, We are now his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a different walking style now that you have become a Christian. There's a distinct way of walking. Imagine uh, the the bridge that goes over the Torrens River towards Adelaide Oval and you're in a massive crowd that's walking towards a big event that's being held at Adelaide Oval. And If you've ever been in that, there's just a lot of people just side to side, just full of people, like a tide of people going. And you're part of that and you're going along with the flow. But then all of a sudden, you decide to stop and turn around and go in the other direction. Yes, you're that person. The person who turns around and has to sort of dodge the people. Well, that is something like a picture of the challenge of walking as a Christian. You're walking in a different direction with a different style. Now, it doesn't mean that you're obnoxious to everyone. It doesn't mean that you're rude and that you disagree with everyone in the world about everything. It doesn't mean that. But the direction and the focus of your life is fundamentally different and heading in a different way. And in the second half of this letter, Paul spells out what this new walk is supposed to look like. He actually gives us the clues and and speaks up front about what it's supposed to look like. And so this morning we're going to see what it looks like in the church, in the family of God. He talks about it in relation to sexual purity He talks about it in relation to speech and conduct, in relationships, in your marriage, in raising kids, in the workplace, all the the areas of life, in every area of life. How is your walk as a Christian supposed to look? 
So this morning he says, walk worthy. Uh, Later we see you're no longer to walk as the Gentiles do or as sinners do. He says, walk in love, walk in light or as children as light of light. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, walk in wisdom. And in chapter six, we learn that this is not a walk in the park, but it's a walk through a spiritual battle. There is an enemy that is working against us. uh, And so this makes our walk as Christians challenging. So let me ask you, as we sort of set this up, what is your walking style? What is your walking style? Are you walking with a distinct walk of a Christian? Do people know the walk that you are walking? At your workplace, at family dues, perhaps you're part of a a local mums group or at university or school in your neighbourhood. Is it a distinct walk or really does your life just look pretty much like everybody else's who is far away from God? Perhaps just the same focus of things in the world, the same watching habits, the same emphasis on money and career, same goals, same dreams for life. Might be the same attitudes, maybe the same typical behaviours or the lack of love that we see out there in the world is pretty much kind of the way it is with you too. No, our walk must be distinct. And notice that it ought to be according to the same weight of our calling. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been Now notice he urges it. It's a cry from his heart. I urge you, come with me on this. Please come with me on this. Walk in a manner worthy. It's like living according to the same weight of your call. The word worthy is axios. It's where we get the word axiom. It's like having a weight on one side and a weight on the other for it to be in balance. And on one side, the, the weight is God's call. There is a heavy weight with God's call a magnificence to it, a glory to it. And so therefore, as Christians, we ought to live in a manner that's worthy of the weight of his call. Think about it if the prime minister was to give you a call up and say, hey, I've selected you. I've chosen you. I want you to represent me. I want you to go and act on my behalf, to live out my my way. You wouldn't just sort of hang up and sit down and forget about that. You You would want to act in a way that was worthy of the loftiness of that call because you have been chosen to live that way. And this, therefore, you could say is how much more than for the call of God ought we to walk in a manner that's worthy. I want to ask, is that, is that your aim in life? Are you thinking about that very much? Are you thinking about like examining yourself and saying, is my walk distinctly Christian? It's distinctly following after Jesus. Well, that was kind of like intro to the second half of this letter. But really I want to like transition into something that's specific here because that's where Paul goes. And the first area of a worthy walk is to walk in Christian unity. That's the first thing that uh, Paul addresses. It's to display our oneness as Christians. And in chapter 2, Paul has already uh, addressed this because you remember uh, that he talked about how the dividing wall of hostility that was there between Jew and Gentile has been broken down and there is now oneness. There is one new humanity 
because of the cross. That's what the cross has done. Didn't only deal with personal sin, but also the disconnection with fellow humanity. He broke these things down. All sinners were saved by the same grace. All saints are now saints because of the same Christ. And so this is what God has done. And this is important because we need to realize we don't create our own unity. You ever go to those team building activities at your workplace and they're doing team building? What's the point of it? It's to try and generate unity within the team. That's not like this. God actually creates our unity. It's essential character of what the church actually is. And God gives us our oneness by virtue of what he has done. And so notice here in verse 3, he actually says that we are to be eager to maintain our unity, not to create it, but actually to maintain it, to keep it uh, in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Now this word bond uh, means it's like a rope or or a tie. And so we are already tied together by the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ. So just think about it for a moment. Think about the person you would least likely to be tied to. Think about the Christian. You, no, don't think about that. That's not, that's not a nice thing. But you know, I'll just, just a newsflash for you. You are tied to them. You are already tied to them. If they're a believer and you're a believer, you are already tied to them because you have been brought uh, to peace through Christ. And so it's important to know this. This is God's doing. Um, but we have to realize that it our unity is around something that is specific. So we're not talking about here unity with the world's religions. Can't we all just get along together and just sort of see that all the mountain, everything leads to the same thing at the top of the mountain? No, the unity that God has created is around something specific. The peace that Jesus Christ brings is through uh, the gospel. And, of course, we don't also have unity with those who falsely teach the Bible to a point where it's like unrecognizable that it's this one faith that Paul is going to go and talk about. There is one faith. There's not a faith that you want to make up. There is one faith, and that is a faith that is aligned with what the Scripture teaches. But we already do have unity with true believers in Jesus Christ. So we don't create our unity. But Paul says, what Paul's point is, is that we are to make every effort to live out, display and experience that reality of our oneness, of our Christian unity. That is what is worthy of our call, living in line with our essential nature. This week I was reading an article in Christianity Today magazine, and in it there was a story about Christian Ukrainian refugees who have had to make their way into Russia after being displaced from the Donbass region, which is the kind of the, the... the region that's on the border of those two countries. And as the Christian Ukrainians have been coming in, the amazing thing is, is that Russian evangelical churches have been opening their doors to invite them in. Now, I can't imagine what that is like. I mean, this, we're talking, this is like a, a, an international conflict that is going on that is in, caused incredible damage in the personal lives of people, people displaced. And People are emotional. People would have all kinds of hurts and wounds about what's going on. And yet, what we see here is this example of churches in Russia looking, trying to look past that, trying to deal with Ukrainian people coming together in one church community. And I wonder what sort of things are going on. Like, does that church need to sort of make a political statement against what the Russian government are doing? Or I don't know. 
But I just know it can't be easy, especially as time goes on, as they learn to live with one another. But they've opened their doors, and the reason is that this article talks about is because they share a deeper bond than their politics, than their nationality, and there is an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the thing is, when you read about something like that from afar, you think, that is inspiring. You're looking at that, yes, that is how Christians are supposed to live. It's a good news story. You want to celebrate that. However, when the challenge to unity is on our own doorstep, and there are differences that you have personally with other Christians, other people in your own church, unity doesn't feel as inspiring, does it, to try and keep Because our wants, our desires become more important than maintaining the bond of peace, the unity of the Spirit. And I'm talking about myself here this morning. I'm preaching to myself here this morning. This is a challenge. When the test of unity is there, it doesn't seem as inspiring to want to keep it compared to what my desires are. In fact, often in times of conflict, maintaining unity is almost viewed as weakness. It's about 10th on the list of priorities. But not so with Paul, not so with God. Maintaining our unity is the first thing that he speaks about when it comes to walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling as a church. We are to maintain unity. So this morning I want to look at three things about how we can do that, maintain our unity. Firstly, there is a character that is needed for it. If we want to have unity, there's character involved. We can't just rely on the natural goodness of our heart, that it will be a given, that will be taken for granted. There is character needed. But when times of conflict and crisis come, it could be in the church, but it also could be in your marriage. You think about your marriage at the moment, the state of your marriage. You think about your friendships, the friendships that you have with other believers and people in the church. Maybe some kind of frustration in one of the ministries that you're involved in, in this church, a ministry team, someone that just really annoys you the way they do it. It's just annoying. Well, there could be all kinds of environments that that unity is tested. And usually in times like that, there's two people that we look for. One is someone else to blame it all on. And the other person is someone else to come in and fix it. But usually, you know what, the person that we actually need to look to is the person we look to last and least, and that is ourselves. And Paul's actually saying here that to maintain unity, there is the kind of character that you need to have. There's character that you need to have if you want to see unity come about in the life of the church. And the first thing he says is with all humility. We need to be people of all humility. In other versions, it uses the word lowliness. Philippians 2.3 defines that for us in the context actually of describing Jesus as saying, with all humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Now, I think it's important to note here that it does, this does not mean avoiding conflict. I mean, we can't just like, stick to the walls and be conflict avoiders. We, I mean, you actually got to come together and tease out issues. You've got to deal with things. There are things that are important to actually deal with, and sometimes that involves conflict, disagreements. But humility in conflict operates and functions totally different. When you're proud, you go in, you're, you're trying to make your point. You don't care what they're saying. You just care what you're saying and what you think. And, the way, and so you 
pridefully put that forward and it always creates an explosion. But when you act with humility, you actually seek to listen, slow down, take on board the views of others and you're not just self-interested, you are interested in them. You are focused on them. You're focused on the issue as well itself. Now, I don't know about this, but you ever think about when you know like there's going to be a thing with someone? Like, you know, there's a thing, it's kind of not resolved and you know at some point it's going to come together and you're going to have to talk about it. I mean, you know, there's an option. It, it can either be an explosion or it could go well. But you know what always helps to make it go well is when that person or yourself decides to display some softness and also a willingness to self-reflect. Like if they're all just guns blazing, the thing has no hope. But if you actually go in and there's a little bit of self-reflection there and there's still the issue, the issue needs to be dealt with and you're not quite sure how you're going to resolve it, but you can sense in them that there's self-reflection. I mean, that's everything to helping bring peace. That's, that's everything to helping resolve. That will change the atmosphere of what's going on there. And, and so this is what we need. We need to be people who are growing in humility, growing in lowliness. Uh, you know, some of us might self-examine and say, well, you know, I've got a little bit of that, got a little bit of humility. But notice Paul says, with all humility. And I, and I think what's helpful for us to think is that we need to actually go deeper than we've already gone in lowliness. I mean, you think you've gone to a certain level of lowliness? Go lower. Think about the King of glory, Jesus, who left heaven and came down to die on a criminal's cross in our, in our, on our behalf. Go to a level of lowliness that is death to self for the sake of others. The second thing he says is gentleness. Other versions say meekness. Now, often people think that meekness is weakness. But, and no one thinks that gentleness is the way to get things done. In our day and age, you barge through, you make your point, you be strong, you display your strength. And we live in a time of harsh critique and everyone gets on board with that. And our media teaches us how to be harsh. We live in a time of outrage about everything. Even small things. Something happens at church. Outrage. Something happens at school. Outrage. Something a family member did. Outrage. And we go from zero to ten in a split second in our outrage. We exaggerate. We make things worse than they really are. And so meekness is not weakness Meekness or gentleness is actually strength that is under control. It's actually got its heart at, in self-control. Not needing to fly off the handle, but actually control, so have self-control and be gentle with people. This is the essential character of Jesus. Jesus described himself as, in Matthew 11, gentle and lowly. And in case you think that not much can be accomplished through gentleness, what did Jesus accomplish through gentleness and humility but the salvation of the whole world? So where is your gentleness, Christian? Where is your gentleness? I want to give you a proverb for your household, for this week, for your kitchen, for your family room. Proverbs 15.1, a soft word turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Isn't that true? A harsh word stirs up anger. 
A soft word turns away wrath. That's a, a good word for this household too. Thirdly, he says, with patience, with patience. Other versions use the word long-suffering, which literally means how it sounds to suffer with someone for a very long time. And patience is the ability to do that. It's the ability to endure with difficult people and situations without giving up in anger and without giving up hope. It's a quality that is about self-restraint, non-impulsiveness, and instead it actually learns to wait for God and to extend time and extend grace for other people. Uh, Patience in a church is giving grace to people who are still growing, which of course is every one of us. Every one of us are on that journey of sanctification. We need to have patience with one another. And really the kicker for this one is Romans 2 verse 4, where we learn that God has been patient with us. He has suffered a very long time with us. He didn't immediately cancel us when he could have, but he has been gracious to us. And we need to learn patience. If we're going to grow in unity in the church, if we're going to maintain our unity, there's a character that's needed. There's a character required. It doesn't just come about through the church bylaws or through everyone agreeing on certain things. It comes about through character. We all need to take this on board. Uh, Secondly, there's also a course of action to unity. In other words, you can't just sit on your hands or just exist together or just avoid one another. There's a course of action that you need to take. And here we see that that course of action in the second part of verse 2 is to bear with one another in love, to bear with one another. The word is bear is to tolerate, which kind of sounds a little bit like I'm just going to put up with you. Um, And it sounds like you could even do that with a negative attitude or a begrudging attitude. But actually Paul modifies it with in love. You've got to tolerate one another in love. And I always think that love is not something that you just keep to yourself. Love is something that is actually an action. Like in Romans 12 verse 20, uh, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if your uh, enemy is thirsty, then give them something to drink. And I've got to tell you, this, does, this is important. Love in action. Bearing with one another in love is actually seeking to go and bless those who persecute you. Like, for example, I know that there's been times where I've been the cause of a problem in my marriage with Michelle. And uh, I know it's kind of like lingering there and it's like not dealt with and blah, blah, blah. And the next morning, she comes in with coffee and toast. She fed and watered the enemy. And I'll tell you what, it burned coals on the top of my head. It literally... <laughs> transformed the atmosphere to make me think, oh, wow, like she is genuinely bearing with me in love. She is seeking to bless me even though I have done the wrong thing. This is the radical kind of call of a Christian, uh, the radical kind of thing that is not required out there. I mean, people put you out, out there in the world, stuff them and move on. But in the church, it's different. In the church, it's different. We are to bless those who persecute us. We are to bear with one another in love. So have a think about this. Who do you need to bear with in love at the moment in your life? Who do you need to bear with in love in order to keep Christian unity? The second course of action is verse 3, to be eager. What a great word, be eager. It's kind of like this. Eyes wide open, be eager. Be looking for the opportunity to keep and maintain our unity. Strive, make every effort. 
I think usually kind of our natural inclination is to go the other way and be eager to look for what makes us different and divide over. Paul says, no, be eager uh, for unity. Uh, makes me think of a, a couple of weeks ago when I gave my youngest son a dollar coin. And I gave him this dollar coin. It was like treasure. And he put it in his pocket. And he just kept his hand in his pocket. So he can actually like, make sure that he's still holding on to the dollar coin. And then every like, little while, he'd come into my room and show me that he still had the dollar. All right? And then there was this one moment where he's on the couch and he lost the dollar down the back of the couch and he searched everywhere for the dollar and then he came back in and showed me that he found it. And I thought, man, that is eager. That is eager for that dollar. That's actually how the church needs to be, about unity. We need to be eager for unity because it is precious treasure. You can't do anything without unity. You can't do anything in the church. Got great dreams, want to feed the hungry, want to see people come to Christ, want to you know, do amazing things, want to set up great ministries for the future and see people grow in the faith. Can't do it. You can't do it without unity. So are we eager to keep and maintain our unity? You know, sometimes you've got to make trouble to make peace because uh, sometimes striving for peace, it actually rocks the boat. It's like, oh, let's just get on, get on with it and not worry about it. But sometimes, you know, you actually have to, you know, take that step to actually make reconciliation. It's, it's hard, hard yards. I, I find it hard. I, I hate conflict. I hate having to wade in and deal with things, difficult situations. It's not really my, in my nature to sort of confront people like that. But every time that I've actually decided to go there, and that when I've done it in the right way, with humility and gentleness and patience, it has been worth it in the end. You can win a brother. You can win a sister. It can change everything. And so as you think about making peace, there might even be a specific situation that you can think of at the moment. You think about making peace. Here's an acronym for, the, for this, and it's the acronym of PEACE. I never do this, but I decided to do it today, all right? It is an acronym. All right, the first thing in making peace is pleasing Christ. You're not trying to get revenge. You're not trying to get justice. You're not trying to prove your point. Your motivation in making peace is, I want to please Christ. That's your ultimate motivation. So sort out that motivation. The second thing is to examine yourself first. Don't just think about all of their offenses. Own what you can own in the situation. Uh, thirdly, ask God for wisdom and help. Don't go in prayerless. Don't go on thinking, oh, my smooth character and personality, I'm going to be able to smooth this through. No, no. Ask God for wisdom. He can do more than we ask or think. Uh, fourthly, uh, carefully approach with gentleness. That's what Paul's been talking about. Your manner matters. You know, sometimes people don't realize this, but I'm right. The point is, like, the point is clear as I'm right. I've got, a, I've got a right to prosecute this. But you know what? Your manner matters. You've got to go in with gentleness. Lastly, entrust the results to God. You want peace in a situation of conflict? Ultimately, you can't control another person. Entrust the results to God. So there is a character that is needed for it. There is a course of action to it. And there is also the common ground of it. And this is the last brief point. Paul says in verse 1, the common ground that we have, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to 
one hope that belongs to your call. Throughout this section, one, the word one is said seven times. That's the point. That's our common ground. There is oneness here. And sometimes we actually forget this about the Holy Spirit. And we sort of think of the Holy Spirit like, I've got a little Holy Spirit, you've got a little Holy Spirit, you've got a little Holy Spirit, you've got a little Holy Spirit. But actually, that's not how it works. There's one Holy Spirit that we all share in together. The Holy Spirit. And this is our, this is our oneness that we have together in God. Not only do we share the same Holy Spirit, but we also share the one hope. And so what we have to realize is that those people that we struggle with, we struggle to live with in the church and with other believers, there's not like a different section of heaven for them and a different section for you. We're actually called to one hope. There's one place. There's one final destination that all of us are going to be in together. We need to have that perspective about other believers that we are going to spend eternity with. And so I think that in the midst of conflict, what we really need to do is we have to stare for more than just a few minutes at our common ground, at our oneness. And so let's just do that for a moment. Let, just go with me from verse 4. There is one body. There's only one body of Christ. There's not a separate church for people who get on your nerves. One body. Two, there is one spirit. I've already talked about that. We are called to one hope. There's not a separate hope or a separate place. There's one Lord that's referring to Jesus Christ, the one Lord that we bow our knee to together and who died on the cross for our sins. There is one faith, one Christian faith with one gospel that we believe in. There's one baptism. There's not a better baptism or a different baptism for another and for others. There's one baptism. And there is one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all and in all. And so we pray to the same God and creator as our fellow Christian believer. This is the groundness of, ground of our unity. This is what we must stare into, like I'm talking about from our hearts. And see this as the central nature and character of the church. And so Paul says, I urge you, I urge you, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Now, I was talking to someone recently as I close who told me a story about a church in Australia who had a new pastor arrive at their church uh, to take up a role. And, and after being there for a few months, he, he just kind of felt like there was something off in the community, something off about the people, something that didn't seem right. And it had to do with something to do with just general attitudes, a lack of warmth, a lack of affection amongst the people. And so he asked somebody, this pastor asked somebody from outside to come into the church and to, to, to check it out. And what they found together as they opened it up was that there was an unresolved issue that remained in the church from some 19 years earlier that had never really been properly dealt with. And of course, everyone all along said, well, everything's fine, everything's fine. But really what they did was just exist together they just exist existed in the same church and they said that there was peace when there was no peace and so 19 years later it still remained in the heart of that church and no great work happened there in all that time because there was no unity because they did not display the character that is needed for unity they didn't take the course of action toward unity 
And they did not treasure the common ground of their unity. And so I want to say this morning to us here at our church in City Reach West to think about our church moving forward. And not to think of other people, but to think of yourself. Are you growing in the character required for church unity? Growing in humility, growing in gentleness, and with patience? Are you taking the course of action toward unity? You're bearing with one another in love, and you're eager, looking for opportunities. You know, that time, that moment where you start having someone in your ear giving you a little bit of gossip about what's happening in another family in the church or, or something in the church or some leader or ministry, and it's like a real temptation to kind of gobble up that tasty morsel. Are you going to give in to that or are you actually going to move away from that for the sake of unity? Thirdly, are you looking to the common ground of your unity? At what we share and not just what separates. So I urge you, church, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which firstly is to walk together in unity. Now, I think all of us can look at our own shortcomings in this. As I said to you, I preach this sermon to myself this morning. We can look at our failures in, the, in these things, our attitudes. We can look at ways that we have not been humble, gentle, or patient, that we have not been loving in our marriages, in the church, in our relationships and friendships. We can all see that. These are things that our Saviour did not fail in. He was filled with all humility and gentleness and patience. He bore with us in love. Uh, he was eager to make peace between our Father and us. And he stands in our place of failure and sin. And so if there are things that are revealed to you in your heart where you have fallen short in this area, the place for you to look this morning is not actual to despair, but to Jesus. And to actually hold on and to trust in Jesus, his forgiveness, his cleansing grace, and his commitment to you to continue to transform your work, your walk to be worthy to follow after him. I just want to encourage you with that, and I want to give you the opportunity now uh, to take the Lord's Supper as a church. Because the Lord's Supper really is that symbolic meal of what I've been talking about. You know, when you eat with somebody, the, the intimacy of actually sitting around a table together and eating, I mean... That's an expression, isn't it, of unity. That, like when you're willing to do that and you share that intimacy, you, you really are experiencing something like this Christian unity and what it ought to be like. You're accepting that person and they are accepting you. And the Lord's Supper really is that symbolic meal that demonstrates this. It tells us that we have one Lord, uh, we have you know, one sacrifice of his body for us, one hope one faith, one baptism, one God. And when we eat and drink, we're partaking of that together and symbolizing our unity. And so before we do that together, I want to give you a few moments just to think more deeply on these beautiful thoughts and to think about your common ground that you have in Jesus and with others. And then to examine your attitudes and your actions toward other believers and bring those things 
before God. As Paul says in another place, let a person examine himself and so eat and drink of the bread and of the cup. Why don't you bow your heads and do that for just a moment?